If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Luke 16, 19 to 31. Uh, we'll get back to Acts next week. Uh, last Sunday through the end of this week, Andrew and I and our families had the privilege of going up to Cedar Bay. Cedar Bay is in the Upper Peninsula, and uh, Forest Springs has a new camp up there. It's new to them. It's been a long time in our varsity camp, astoundingly beautiful. And uh, we were the speakers of Family Camp 3. And so last Sunday, we preached the message we're going to preach to you. Uh, just give you fair warning, for each of our messages, they ask us to fill 50 minutes. So we kind of adjusted up, and we're going to adjust slightly down, slightly down this morning. Let's uh, go ahead and bow in a word of prayer. Father God, uh, I thank you for this text out of Luke that you have given us. We ask, Father, that you would take your inspired and errant word and you would apply it to our hearts, that we might know that it is good to know you, to know your word, and to be changed by it. Speak to us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Prior to becoming the 30th president of the United States, upon the sudden death of President Warren Harding in 1923, Cal or Calvin Coolidge was our vice president. And as is typical of vice presidents, he presided over the Senate. If you know anything about Cal Coolidge, you know that he was called Silent Cal because he didn't speak a lot. I think that's pretty wise because you remember that we're told in Matthew 12 that we will give an account for every idle word that we speak. I think for some of us that might be a long account. Well, Cal didn't speak a lot. And in fact, while he presided over the Senate, he often just opened a book and read. One particular day, there was a very hot exchange between two of the senators, and one of them looked at the other and said, go to hell. And the offended senator looked at Cal Coolidge, who is presiding over the Senate. He said, he just told me to go to hell. What are you going to do about that? Cal picked up the rule book, flipped through it for a few moments, looked back and said, as far as I can tell, you don't have to go. And he's absolutely right. You don't have to go. The most inclusive offer ever made on this planet is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 13, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The offer is to all, but it is only effectual. It only has effect to those who by faith believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no other name under heaven by which man may be saved. Jesus said in John 14.6, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the offer is inclusive, but it is exclusive, effectually, only to those who by faith believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. As Pastor Jeff just noted, no one has to go to hell. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, 9, Scripture tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The free gift of salvation is available to everyone. However, people respond differently to the offer of that gift, don't they? When we were writing this sermon, I was thinking of a friend of mine from California. He grew up in Southern California, and in high school, he was uh, a bit of a a basketball star. He was well-liked. He was popular. Everything seemed to be going well for him. However, he really didn't have any spiritual background. He didn't grow up in a Christian family, didn't really know who Jesus was, didn't really have any Uh, spiritual needs that he knew of, but then everything changed one evening when he and a group of friends were going to watch a movie at the local movie theater. They were approached by a group of high schoolers that were part of an evangelism ministry from a local church. High schoolers that were going out and sharing their faith with other high schoolers that they just bumped into in public settings. Those were some brave high school students. And when they were having this conversation with Ryan and his friends, over the next 30 minutes, they were able to articulate the gospel message. And Ryan and his friends had two very different responses. His friends just laughed. They laughed it off. They thought these people were part of a cult or were ridiculous and just wanted to get on with their day. But Ryan was very affected by the message. That was the first time he understood that he needed a savior. That was the first time he had thought deeply about spiritual things. And shortly after, he gave his life to Christ. And 10 years later, he's still walking with the Lord. And he's actually a life group leader in the youth ministry that had sent the team out uh, the night that, that they came and shared the gospel with him. But just think about that. The same message, the same offer of salvation, but two radically different responses. And because of those two radically different responses, the way in which they've responded has set them on a trajectory for two very different eternal destinations. And that's what our parable this morning is all about. We live in a culture that gives little thought to death, that gives little thought to what life after uh, death looks like, but Jesus talked about eternity often, and he wants us to think deeply about eternity and which eternal destination we are headed towards. Because in our passage today, we're reminded that there are real places called heaven and hell, and our acceptance or rejection of the free offer of salvation determines where we are going to spend eternity. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 16. We're going to go through verses 19 through 31 together. This is a parable. Jesus often used parables. They were stories that taught profound spiritual truths. However, I do think this passage is more than a parable. This is the only parable that uses a proper name. You can go home and look at it today. You're not going to see any other parable that uses a proper name. Only this one uses the name Lazarus. Which means that while this is a parable, I think Lazarus and the rich man are actual historical figures. And we will meet Lazarus one day in, in heaven. So that in mind, let's go ahead and read this passage together. There was a rich man 
who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, the rich man is unnamed. However, throughout church history, he's often been given a name. Dives. It's a, a Latin word that stands for rich. Go ahead. You want me to tell the story? Okay. I don't want you to, but go ahead. So when we were reading through this, I, 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 don't, I don't know Latin. I'm sorry. I know some Greek. I don't know Latin. So I just was taking this uh, on faith from Pastor Jeff. He wrote that little piece in there. So we said this. And then after we preached this sermon at camp, there's a young man, probably a boy. Even, he was a boy. He was a boy who came up to Jeff and said, do you know Latin? And he said, well, you know, I, yes, I've read through some. And he said, well, said, no, no. <laughs> I said, I learned biblical Latin. I don't know Latin at all. And he said, there's no such thing as a hard V in Latin. Instead, it would be pronounced dues. Dues. So you said the word, the whole wrong, the sermon, and then the boy walked off. So <laughs> out of the mouth I, of babes comes truth. And sometimes a gentle rebuke is good for all of us. So I just did it the way the commentaries did it. There, blame the commentaries. Jeff. I will blame the commentary. There was a rich that man, Dewey, <laughs> who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, and moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. But the poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between you and us, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who have passed from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us." And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, and Lazarus should warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Before you and I delve into the text, allow me to retell it in 21st century language. Mr. Dives, or Dewey, was a man of his time. He was a power broker. You got questions, he's got answers. You got problems, he's got solutions. He's got the world by the tail. His office is a corner penthouse over the Miracle Mile of Chicago, overlooking Lake Michigan. He's got several private estates, mostly on Sheridan Avenue, gated houses. He dresses to the nines. Every morning he gets up and he wears a William Westmancott suit, about 80 grand. He has a Montegrappa pen, about 82 grand. His watch is not a cheap Rolex or Timex, it's a Rolex. It's a Rolex Platinum Pearl Master, about 275,000 dollars. Now you may think I took those pictures off the internet. No, 
Those are from Dave Mahler's private collection. <laughs> the only guy who wears a suit in this entire church. <laughs> Dives' credit is platinum. He's a powerful broker. Every morning he gets up, he dresses. He has his meal. A sea of employees, a sea of servants take care of him. He gets in the back of one of his stretch limousines. The gate opens. He pulls out onto Sheridan Avenue. And every day he's ticked. Just off his property line, just onto public property, there is Lazarus. Every morning someone drops him off. Every evening someone picks him up. The man is handicapped. He cannot move. The stench is overwhelming. Mr. Dives' papered Dobermans long since have realized that Lazarus is not a threat. They come out and lick his wounds. How disgusting is that? The man probably lives on the government dole. Mr. Dives tells the kitchen staff under no circumstances, no circumstances are any of you to feed this man. I don't care if you throw food away. I don't care if you take it home. Nobody gives him a bite. I don't want to give him any excuse to continue to sit just outside my property line. A day comes. Lazarus dies. He had a terrible life, but he prepared for eternity. He placed his faith in the coming Redeemer. He knew that someone needed to redeem his sin, and he placed his faith in the Redeemer. In the Old Testament, they look forward to the Redeemer. In the New Testament and church age, we look back on the Redeemer. We know him as Jesus. Nobody has ever been saved except through faith in the Redeemer. He placed his faith in the Redeemer, and he went to Abraham's bosom. Soon after that, Mr. Dives rather unexpectedly dies. Maybe he has a heart attack, high blood pressure, always worrying about just a little bit more, never satisfied with life, working long hours, recreating hard, never concerning himself with his soul. He always thought perhaps there'd be some time in the future he'd worry about his soul, but he died. Death comes suddenly. It did for Mr. Dives. And God, ever the gentleman, said, you will have nothing to do with me in life. You will have nothing to do with me in eternal life. And you will suffer apart from me forever. Jeff's modern retelling at times probably seemed uh, filled with hyperbole and kind of being over the top. But that's really exactly what Jesus is getting after with the original words in the text. It's the same types of details that Jesus wants us to visualize. In verse 19, looking at the original wording here, we're introduced to a rich man. And notice the descriptions. He wears fine linen. He's covered in purple. He feasts sumptuously. These are words that clue us into the extravagance in the way in which he lives. The fine linen probably referred to his undergarments that were made of Egyptian uh, linen, very expensive. 
The purple probably referred to an outer garment that was dyed purple through murex, which was made from a rare and expensive sea mussel that only the royalty could afford. So he's presenting himself as a prince to the people. He is royalty. He feasts sumptuously. This has the picture of a never-ending five-star cruise buffet for every meal. He's eating lobster tail and filet mignon, much like Jeff eats every day as well. I'm just kidding. But he has a feasting sumptuously every single day. So in the midst of his elaborate lifestyle, Jesus wants us to see that he neglected the things of most importance. He neglected his soul. You can't read through this parable without thinking of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and, and rust destroy and corrupt or thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and the thieves cannot break in and steal it for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. This man clearly gave little thought of storing up any treasure in heaven. He gave no thought to eternity. He gave little thought to the condition of his soul. He gave little thought to how he could properly love God or love other people. Instead, he was a hedonistic man who spent all of his time and money on his wants, his lusts, his desires, his pleasures. I can't help but think of what Jesus says somewhere else. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And that's exactly what the rich man did. He forfeits his soul and makes a foolish investment. Which brings us to the life of Lazarus, one of disappointment, suffering, and neglect. Lazarus had it rough, and by this point in his life, he is paralyzed. He can't transport himself, so he has to be dropped off every day. And I imagine that Lazarus asked to be dropped off in front of the house of the rich man because Lazarus knows the Torah well. He knows the Pentateuch. He knows that in God's law, the rich and the wealthy and the affluent were commanded to look out for the needs of those who were genuinely out, uh, out on their luck, who suffered, who were poor, who were disenfranchised. And he's hoping that this man is going to live out the law and show him compassion and mercy. Yet he's shown none. I'm sure the rich man probably justified his behavior, why he shouldn't show generosity and compassion to this man. Believe it or not, it's very easy to come up with seemingly pious reasons to do evil deeds if we try hard enough. But for one reason or another, Lazarus has shown no mercy. He's not just lame, he's also covered in painful sores. His body would have looked raw and infected. And the text tells us that the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, when we hear that, we might think of, you know, a fluffy golden retriever named Max coming giving puppy kisses, but that, that's not what's going on in this passage. These are flea-disease-infested street dogs that come and torment him as they lick his weeping ulcers. Jesus is giving it a very graphic portrayal. Worst of all, being licked by these unclean dogs would make you ceremonially unclean, so no good Jewish person would want to be caught near them. And worst of all, Lazarus is starving to death. He's so thin you can hear his stomach growling from yards away. And it says that he longs to be fed with the crumbs that are left from the rich man's table. That sounds pretty 
pointed, but there's actually something even deeper going on that a little knowledge of first century Middle Eastern uh, cuisine and culinary arts helps unlock. Now, I'm not as familiar with those, so I'm going to turn things over to Chef Jeff, and he's going to tell us what is going on in this passage. Well, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Every so often, I have the privilege of going to Israel, and I think something that I've experienced in Israel actually helps explain this text. Now, we go to a number of sites. They're the same ones, but each trip, I have a little bit of leeway, and I might go to these six that I haven't gone to in a while, or those four, and a little bit of variance. One place I've been to three times is Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is 27 miles north of Jerusalem. It's in Samaria, and it is the place of Samaritans. Now, if you know much about the New Testament, you know that Jews don't like Samaritans. Samaritans don't like Jews. They have a hate-hate relationship one with another. How did we get Samaritans? Well, it really goes back to 722 B.C. You see, the 10 northern tribes seceded from the Union. They retained the name Israel. They had about 20 different kings. All of them were evil. For several hundred years, they disobeyed God. They had no regard for God. And finally, the Lord said, I will bring judgment, discipline in your life. And he sent Assyria in 722 to ransack the northern tribes. And they came under a man named King Sargon. At this point, I'm going to stop for a moment, and Andrew's going to pick up. He'll tell you a little bit about King Sargon, and then I'll tell you the rest of how this fits in to the text. This is really just a fun fact. It doesn't relate too much to our parable, but I thought it would be helpful in something that... I wanted something that you actually wrote in this sermon. There you go. So King, uh, so King Sargon was the Assyrian king during 722 when the 10 northern tribes were taken into captivity. Now, Sargon was forgotten throughout much of history. A lot of the historical data somehow missed him. And for well over a thousand years, historians, archaeologists, they believed that Sargon did not exist. Sargon is actually only mentioned in antiquity for a long time in the book of Isaiah, chapter 20. And this was something that many historians and archaeologists used to try to discredit the reliability of Scripture. There have been many moments where people all throughout history, historians, they say, this never happened, the reliability of Scripture is in question, the history of the Bible is not accurate. And they use Sargon as an illustration because Sargon's name was found nowhere else other than Isaiah 20 until the mid-1800s. In the mid-1800s, when they were excavating a certain site, they unearthed a massive palace that covered multiple acres. And guess what name was ascribed to the palace? It was the palace of Sargon, the king of Assyria during 722 BC. And now Sargon is accepted as a historical fact. You can actually see remnants of the palace of Sargon that have been excavated in the British Museum. And some of our G180 students got to see that a few weeks ago when we were leading a tour showing 50 different artifacts 
in the British Museum that confirmed through historicity and archaeology the reliability of the biblical narrative. So that's just a fun fact, but that's one of the many things where history and archaeology prove rather than disprove the reliability of the historical record. So archaeologist Andrew, back over to Chef Jeff. So Sargon brings the Assyrians in 722 BC. And after destroying the 10 northern tribes, many of the Assyrians stay. They stay in West Manasseh and Ephraim. And many of the Assyrians intermarry with Jews. Now we have a new race, half Assyrian, half Jew, which many believe gives us the Samaritans. In the time of Jesus, there were between 500,000 and a million Samaritans. Today, there is probably around 800, 900 Samaritans worldwide. 90% of them live on Mount Gerizim. And so when you go to Mount Gerizim in Samaria, you meet these individuals who have rejected most of the Old Testament. They only accept the first five books, the Torah. They're looking for a very different Messiah than Scripture gives us. You remember when the second temple was going to be rebuilt under Ezra and Zerubbabel and Haggai. Some Samaritans offered to help build and they were rejected. In 444 BC, when Nehemiah came to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, Sambalat and Tobiah offered to help and they also were rejected. Jews hate Samaritans, Samaritans hate Jews. On Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans built a temple. The Jews destroyed it in 120 BC. Uh, the Samaritans returned the favor in 7 AD. They went into the Holy of Holies and threw in bones, actually pig bones, pig and or pork and Jews don't get along. And they desecrated the Holy of Holies. That's Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans are. And I've taken three groups to the top of Mount Gerizim. There is a little Samaritan restaurant up there. When we get there, they close the restaurant down. They just have it for us. And they serve us shawarma and falafel. They serve us rice and beans. And they give us a little pita bread to pick it up and eat the shawarma, the falafel, the rice, the beans. And then what they expect is that when we're done, because the pita bread has served as our fork, it's got saliva on it and it's got different foods. They expect us to throw it on the ground. When we leave, they'll let the dogs in to eat the pita bread. But we're Americans and we don't know that we just ate our fork. And so we all eat the pita bread. I find it interesting, the first two times we were there, they didn't give us forks. This last time they thought, oh, Jeff's group's back. And they gave us forks because they knew we were going to eat our pita bread. That is exactly what Lazarus longs to eat. It's the pita bread that's filled with different pieces of food that it's filled with saliva that is unfit for human consumption. You throw it on the ground for the dogs to eat. That's what he wants to eat. And the rich man could have easily given those things to Lazarus. He could afford to give him much more, but he didn't because the rich man was a self-focused, self-centered man who really didn't care about other people. He ignored one of the main teachings of the Old Testament law. 
Every single person, their life carries immense value and dignity and worth. Every single human life. And that value and worth is not based on your contribution to society. It's not based on your productivity. It's not based on any external factor. It's based on an internal reality that every person bears the image of God. We all are created in the Imago Dei. And that was true of even the crippled, covered, and ulcers Lazarus. But the rich man refused to see that. The rich man hoped Lazarus would go away, and one day he got his wish granted. Lazarus dies. There's no mention of a burial in this passage, which tragically means that Lazarus' body was most likely just tossed outside the walls of Jerusalem into the valley of Hinnom, where refuge and trash are burned 24-7. It's actually a place uh, that's often referred to as Gehenna that gives a picture that Jesus uses of what hell would be like, a place where the, the worm dieth not and the fire is never quenched. Oftentimes, the bodies of the homeless were carelessly and callously tossed into the fire because there was nowhere to bury them. Even though uh, Lazarus meets a tragic demise in this world, we see that the angels bring Lazarus' soul to Abraham's bosom in verse 22, a precursor to heaven that Jeff will explain a little more in a moment. In contrast to Lazarus, verse 22 tells us that the rich man unexpectedly dies as well shortly after. He was buried And most likely, he had a large funeral ceremony. Probably in keeping with the rich and famous of the day, there would have been a hired person there to wax eloquently about how wonderful and righteous and benevolent and all the things that he wasn't actually was at his funeral. He was probably buried in a fancy sarcophagus and in a expensive prime cemetery plot, possibly even on the Mount of Olives, one of the most expensive cemeteries in the world. Jeff has said this before, if you remember that even today, if you want to be buried on the Mount of Olives for a two-by-two plot of land, it will set you back $30,000, and that's sharing that with five other people also paying $30,000. Only the extremely wealthy could be buried in such a place, and that's probably the type of burial the rich man has. So in death, it seems as if Lazarus still comes out on the bottom and the rich man comes out on top, but things are not always as they seem because death is not the end of their stories. Life does not end for either man, as life will not end for any of us. God is infinite. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. We are eternal. We had a beginning, but we will not have an end. All of us will spend eternity either with God or separated from God. I think of Lazarus. His name actually means God is my helper. He is, as Andrew has said, the only formal name or nomenclature given in any parable. Why? Because John 10, 3 says, the good shepherd knows his sheep by name. It's an indication in the text that Lazarus looked forward to the good shepherd He knew the Redeemer, and the Redeemer knows him by name. And therefore, when he died, he went to Abraham's bosom. When I had the privilege of being in the Dominican with a number of our teens, I had the opportunity to teach four or five times. Two of those times, the teens were present. 
they were there when I preached on a Sunday, and then on a Tuesday, uh, some of the church came back, and for an hour or an hour and a half, they did Q&A. They would ask questions, and I would try and answer them. Either the first question or very early on, I was asked, what is Abraham's bosom? What is Abraham's side? And the answer is, it is a precursor to heaven. Those who place their faith in the Redeemer in the Old Testament went to Abraham's bosom until heaven was created. You remember what Jesus said in John 14, 1 and following. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way, etc. Jesus tells us that he was going to a place in heaven, and when he was there, or in the presence of God, when he was there, he would create heaven. Prior to that, the individuals who believed in a Redeemer were placed in a wonderful place called Abraham's bosom until heaven was complete. Lazarus went to heaven. So Lazarus lives, lives out his namesake. His name, once again, means God is my helper, my friend. Lazarus shows that he had trusted in the Lord, so he goes to Abraham's bosom because he is trusted in Jesus. However, in contrast, look at verse 23. It tells us that the rich man neglected God and the needs of his soul, and instead of Abraham's bosom, he goes to a place called Hades. It's the place where the unrighteous go to await the final judgment. And he's assigned Hades because his life was consumed with the things of this earth and he failed to care for his soul. He didn't trust in Jesus as his savior. Now I think if I'm interpreting this parable correctly, I think the rich man is surprised when he wakes up in hell. I think he's surprised because when he reaches out and talks to Abraham, what does he call him? Father Abraham. I think he's saying, I'm a child of Abraham, which is a way in scripture of saying, I'm, I'm part of God's people. And I think he's really saying, I don't deserve to be here. I think the rich man, he probably grew up in a religious community. He probably went to synagogue. He probably went to Jewish school and learned the Torah. And he probably thought that just being immersed in a spiritual community meant that he was on right footing with the Lord. Yet, salvation doesn't come through just being near other righteous people. It's a personal decision. And from his life, it's very clear that he didn't love God. He definitely didn't love other people. He didn't bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. And he did not have a saving relationship with the Lord. But I think he thought he was headed to a different destination, which is a reminder for us all because there's probably very true for a lot of people in the world that we live in as well. So tragically, the rich man is allowed to follow the inclination of his heart, which is to neglect God. So he ends up in Hades and hell, eternally separated from the presence of the Lord. Yet in this parable, we see that the rich man doesn't want to take responsibility for his rejection of Jesus or his earthly sins. Instead, he tries to blame God for ending up in hell. Look again at verses 27 and 28. He demands a personal visit from Lazarus to ease his suffering. 
He says, Father, have mercy on me for I'm in anguish. What an irony. I'm suffering. Have mercy and compassion. Who had, who was in suffering his entire life that he refused to have mercy and compassion on? Lazarus. What a change of the story. But not only that, he says, hey, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and to come and quench my thirst for I'm in suffering. Literally, he says, wake Lazarus up and send him to hell to help me out. Even in hell, he thinks he's Lazarus' societal superior. But then look at also what he says. He says, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment as well. At first, we might read this and think, what a compassionate plea. This rich man doesn't want his five brothers to end up in hell like he is, but that's actually not what's going on here. Implicitly, the rich man is saying, it's not my fault I'm in hell. God didn't give me sufficient warning. I didn't have enough revelation that I needed to repent. I needed more revelation to understand my need to trust in God. If God would have just done a miracle, if God would have raised someone from the dead, then I would have believed. He's saying it's not my fault that I'm here. I needed more revelation. And notice that Abraham's having none of it. How does Abraham reply? They have the law and the prophet. They have, they have the law of Moses and the prophets. They have everything that they need. And the rich man retorts, no, but if someone's raised from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham says, no, they won't. If they won't repent based off of the revelation in God's word, even if they raise from the dead, they're not going to do any different. And essentially, Abraham is saying to the rich man, they have all the revelation that they need. The only reason a person is in hell is because you've rejected the sufficient revelation. I think this is a really important detail because sometimes we have a picture in our minds of maybe people in hell who are going to be repentant and remorseful and recognizing of their sin and their brokenness and calling out for forgiveness. I, I actually don't think that's what hell is going to be like at all. I think hell is going to be filled with hard-hearted people like the rich man saying, I don't deserve to be here. It's your fault that I'm here, God. I was good. I did this. I did that and just shaking their fist in anger at God. I actually think we see that in Revelation 16 during the time of the Great Tribulation. The world's being punished, and they know it's from God. And listen to what they do. People nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pains and sores, and they refuse to repent of their deeds. God is given ample opportunity for every person to know him and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Failure to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior is not God's fault. It's not a personal offense against, uh, it's not an offense of God against sinful humanity. It's an offense of us against a holy God. And in this passage, Jesus desperately wants us to know heaven and hell are real places. And our eternal destiny is totally dependent on our response to God's sufficient revelation in Jesus. So we've looked at this passage, we've illustrated this passage, we've gone into detail on this passage. Now we want to close with a couple words of application from this passage. I think it's very possible in the Western world, we could say, okay, there's sufficient revelation for us. But what about the individual in a remote part of the world that does not know the name of Jesus? What about that individual? Well, the Bible addresses that topic. 
In Romans chapter 1, 19 to 21, it says man is without excuse because the truth of God is revealed in the creation. In fact, we see it also in Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, that when we look outside, when we see what God has made, it cries out for an uncaused cause. It cries out for a creator worthy of worship. And then we go to Romans chapter 3. And Romans 3 says the law of God, the nomos of God, is written on our hearts. And that word nomos law, when it's not further modified, always refers to the Ten Commandments. So the Bible says that the Ten Commandments are written on the heart of every individual. What are the first two commandments? Thou shalt have no other God beside me. Thou shalt not commit idolatry. And so God has created us in such a way that we are not created agnostic. We are not created atheistic. We are created knowing that idolatry is wrong, that worshiping the one true God is right, and that creation cries out to that God. And scripture says, if we seek him, we will find him. In other words, God will find a way. I think of Dr. Hannah. He's a professor at Dallas Seminary of yesteryear, professor of history. He made this statement. Nobody who goes to hell will ever be able to say to God, you put me here. We're in hell because of our sin, our rejection of the Redeemer. The other side of it is also true. No one who goes to heaven will ever be able to say, I got here on my own. We did not. It's through faith, by grace, in the Redeemer. The second point I would take from the text is this. You and I are given the obligation, the joy, the privilege of telling others about the Savior. That is our joy, our obligation, our privilege. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I think another word of application from this passage is that really encourages us to honestly examine our own lives and say, are we confident that we've placed our trust in Jesus alone as our Savior? As I said earlier, I think the rich man was surprised that he woke up in hell. I think he's surprised because he thought he belonged to the Lord when he didn't. He had never confessed of his sin and put his faith in Jesus, but he thought just by being part of the Jewish people, by being spiritual, by attending synagogue, that made him right with God. And I fear that there can be people like that in the culture we live in too. We think that salvation can come to us through osmosis. If we're just near righteous people, it will seep over towards us. If we just go to church, if we just do these things, but that's not it. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. We have to have a saving knowledge of him as our Lord and Savior. So I want all of us today to say, is that true of me? Do I see the fruit of keeping and repentance in my life? Do I love God and love others? Have I placed my faith in Jesus alone for my salvation? But second of all, I think we're reminded in this passage that delaying is deadly, so don't delay. I bet the rich man 
most likely thought he had a lot of time to get things right with the Lord. He probably thought, oh, I can get serious about this later on in life, but the problem is tomorrow's never guaranteed. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when our life will come to an end. We can't delay thinking I'll get things right later on because tomorrow's never assured. So if you have been delaying or if you know someone who's been delaying, realize today's the day to share the gospel. Today's the day to respond the gospel to the gospel in our lives. And lastly, we remember why delaying is so deadly because the moment that we leave this earth, our eternal state is sealed. There's no second chances. Father Abraham tells the rich man that there is a great chasm fixed between the abode of the righteous and the unrighteous so that no one can come back and forth. He's reminding us that the moment our lives end, our opportunity to repent is over. There's no such thing as purgatory where you can go and burn off some sin and eventually find your way back into the kingdom. There's no second opportunity to trust in Jesus. There's no hope of universalism that one day all people will end up in heaven after a period of time. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 is really clear. Just as it's appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. And that's the final judgment. And there's no rendering that verdict differently once it's solidified. So we need to remember that we don't get a second chance. What matters is how we respond right here and right now. This is a heavy parable. And it's a parable that's kind of out of sync with our culture. Our culture doesn't like to think about death. Our culture doesn't like to talk about hell. Our culture doesn't want to think about anything but the here and now. But Jesus regularly told us to contemplate eternity, to live expectantly for eternity. And as Christ followers, we need to be wise to take that message seriously. Who are those that need to hear the gospel? In our lives, do we need to respond to the gospel? How can we live out the implications of this passage well this week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful that Jesus has secured a way for us to not spend eternity in a place separated from your presence and glory called hell, but instead that we can enjoy uh, the glory of heaven because Jesus bore our sins on the cross and made a way for anyone who repents of their sins and puts their faith in him to have eternal life. So Father, we just ask that anyone here who has not trusted in Jesus, today might be the day that they stop delaying and get serious and put their faith in Jesus. And for those of us that do profess the name of Jesus, that we might be burdened to share the gospel with those who do not know him, that even the unreached around the world that Jeff mentioned earlier, maybe we can send missionaries, go as missionaries, support missions to make sure that everybody hears the name of Jesus and uh, has the opportunity to come to a saving knowledge. Just as you say in 2 Peter 3, 9, we're not willing that any should perish, but God, we truly desire for all to reach repentance. Help us to be your ambassadors and take that gospel message with us wherever we go. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.